don't have a core strength number. I'm not like my half in the throws in which I would have a core number. I say, okay, you probably need to get here in order to at least be competitive. Um, that's just not necessarily true in the sprints. Uh, but what I do look at today, having had access for a number of years now, is some of the power numbers. And, you know, um, I tend to look at things in terms of watts per kilogram. So I don't look at at the how much can you lift. I look at what can you lift in, in terms of the power with respect to your body weight. Uh, so in, in the sprinters, I tend to look for, let's say, clean. Uh, I use a Kaiser squat. I, I use a single leg step up, a 20 centimeter single leg step up, fairly heavy um, on, on the Kaiser rack with air and uh, mass combined. So I tend to look at something you know, over the 60 watts per kilogram uh, range. 70 watts per kilogram is great. Uh, Subing 10 can hit that and it's clean and he can hit that now on his, uh, his Kaiser squad. That was legendary track and field coach Randy Huntington speaking on the importance of not so much looking at one or at maxes for track and field sprinters, but rather power output in terms of watts per kilogram in some key lifts. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 103 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. and Today on the show, we have track and field master coach, Randy Huntington. He is in his 42nd year of coaching athletes to go faster, higher, and further. Uh, Coach Huntington has had success on the highest levels of the sport, coaching a high number of Olympic medalists, as well as world record holders, uh, specifically uh, the the still standing uh, world record holder in the long jump of Mike Powell. Uh, He also worked with Willie Banks, if you've heard that name and you're familiar track and field back when he set the triple jump world record. So uh, this is a guy who, who knows how to get it done. His athletes have had tremendous success, and he's doing the same thing now as the national track and field coach for Chinese athletics. And there he's directly responsible for the development of their sprinters and horizontal jumpers. He's working with amazing athletes who are really making a mark on the sport today, such as Su Bing Tian. And like just as you, if you saw so many people watching that 60-meter final at the World Championships, 
uh, Sue is one of those top guys and continually just pushing the limit and breaking records. And Randy's the man behind that right now. And you'll you'll just see that wisdom and that gets athletes fast, that goes kind of beyond the fads that come through the decades, uh, just sprinkled throughout this episode. So really excited to bring that to you today. Um, to his name, uh, Huntington has also coached Olympians Joe Green, Sheila Hudson, Al Joyner, Darren Plab, and uh, many others. And in addition to track and field too, if you're not a track and field coach listening to this uh, show, I mean, track and field has so many applications, I believe, for so many sports. But uh, Randy is also experienced with speed training for other sports, particularly American football. Uh, and if you, if you uh, happen to listen uh, about uh, maybe 20, 30 episodes ago, we had Joseph Coyne on. And he was talking a little bit about his work with Randy uh, as Randy's really a go-to for a lot of up-and-comers in the field as well as established coaches in terms of advice and mentorship and wisdom. So it's always good for me to sit down and talk with these experienced coaches. Today, what I really wanted to get into with uh, Randy was mostly just kind of how things uh, that was really awesome in coaching from the 80s and training setups, the 80s and 90s that led to so many amazing performances. What essence of that is still uh, in the program today because obviously athletes aren't really jumping farther. I mean, it's funny you you jumped 27 feet today and now you're a big deal, but uh, that would have been nothing back uh, 20 years ago. And so it's like, if, is training really getting better? What are we What are we doing? What do we need to do? What do we really need to look at to get athletes to run their fastest, jump their highest, and be the best that they can be? So today again, we're going to talk um, kind of the fundamentals that have really carried Randy through even to today. Uh, we're going to go into how that uh, unfolds into his training setups for the sprints and jumps. We're going to look into how he determines what uh, training bucket to put an athlete into based off some testing markers, which is a really cool section. Uh, regardless of the sport, there's valuable implications in that. Uh, we're also going to talk about long-term development, rebuilding lost athleticism, especially in athletes like in, in China where these athletes have been long jumping since age 12 and that's just been their thing and obviously here in the united states that it becomes a huge problem too with early specialization and so he's going to talk a little bit about long-term development when to start lifting when's an optimal time to start lifting if you want to be your best uh later on uh and then probably my favorite part of the whole episode is his approach to strength training for jumpers and sprinters and how that's just some really core staples in his program, and especially as you heard in the little teaser in the beginning, that power, uh, power to body weight ratio there. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about Randy's use of technology, bar speed monitoring, the 1080 sprint, and then how that filters into uh, things like controlled, uh, controlled high speed sprinting and the possibility of overspeed sprinting and some of his principles and foundations there. So uh, again, it's just awesome to talk to these legendary coaches in the field, and I'm excited to bring you uh, another one here in Randy Huntington. Let's get to the show. Randy, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Uh, thanks, Joel. It's good to be here. I, mean, it's a, I think this is a first for me, actually. Yeah, first, <laughs> first podcast. My, my first, I think this is my first podcast, and I'm pretty technology-oriented. I think this is my first podcast. Yeah, well, hey, this is my first time uh, doing a podcast Skype with anyone from China in China. So, <laughs> first for me too. I'm excited. Hopefully, everything holds up. You know, hopefully that you know our our, our connection stays solid. So, uh, super thrilled to talk to you today. Uh, just for those people out there who, whether familiar with you or not, could you share a little bit about your background? What got you into the industry? And where I know it's been a uh, sure a long ride, but maybe some of the highlights of where you've been and where you are now. Well, this is my 42nd year of coaching, 
Um, and I started my coaching career actually at, at University of Oregon with Dennis Whitby, where I was a uh, PE major, second my second school. I went to Western Michigan first and um, went and uh, had a PE track and field class, as we did back in those days for the PE, so physical education uh, coursework. And Dennis Whitby was the instructor who happened to be the assistant track coach at Oregon at the time. And he saw me work. I, I, I ran a little track in high school, not, not, not very much. Um, and he said, Hey, would you like to assist me? And that's, that's how my coaching career started. So for the next five years, actually, I assisted Dennis, um, five days a week, uh, working with him on, uh, helping the Oregon kids get better. Still in touch with some of those guys to this day. And then from there, um, I took a little, a little journey uh, down to the uh, PGA and uh, started the first health club at the Breakers Hotel, the Summit Hotel in Palm Beach, and then worked for the PGA down there. And then from there to Berkeley. And from Berkeley, I moved. In Berkeley, I had Sheila Hudson and a number of other really fine um, women athletes. I was on the women's side and Tony Sandoval was kind enough to really get me into the collegiate coaching situation. Uh, back in those days, it was not very lucrative. Um, so it was very difficult to stay unless you picked up a position at another school. So uh, I don't want to belabor this, but uh, I left Cal and then I started coaching elite athletes. One of those athletes, as I mentioned, was Sheila Hudson. On that team was Louise Romo. And Louise was dating Willie Banks, who would eventually become her husband. I moved to Los Angeles, and Willie was looking for a coach. He had just stopped uh, working with Chuck Davis, thankfully. Um, and uh, he had a training partner named Mike Powell. And that's kind of how I got to Willie and Mike. And then Al Joyner and Gordon Lane there in 1988. After that, I just continued coaching and uh, went to work for Kaiser in 1989 in Fresno. I worked with Dennis and the Kaiser Group for five years. And then uh, after that particular time period, it was off and about. I think uh, some of the coaches here who have not been able to pick up positions at the university level, and I've had only the one at Oregon and in one, one year at, at Michigan State, um, we do whatever we can to survive. And it's been a been a very interesting journey, which caused me to really learn about a lot of different things. Um, I helped Woodway Treadmills kind of get started in the NFL and the NC2A, helped HydroWorks develop their treadmills, obviously continued working with Kaiser uh, in, a, in a small role throughout the years. It's in my DNA, always will be. Um, and it brought me to, oh, I guess 2000, yeah, 2000, in which I ended up at the Olympic Training Center for several years. And then to Michigan State for a few year for a year and a half, and then I went to, became director of marketing because that's my other life is marketing for MBT Shoes, and then I went to Korea for three years, came back uh, as director of marketing and education for Kaiser again, and then I came to China in 2013. Felt I needed to do something more in coaching. I I, I hadn't feel like I fulfilled myself, even though some people would say that Mike Powell would be enough and Willie Banks and, and the others. But this has led me to here. And, you know, we've had a, a great run of four and a half years now, 
two national records, three national records, four national records, geez. Um, in the long jump and the sprints, I, I coached Su Bing Tan, uh, Jianan Wong had Li Jin Sei, uh, had a young kid, Shi Yu Hao, who just went 843, and Jianan Wong just went 847 last night. So that's kind of where we are. I'm beginning to work with the triple jumpers here. Just It's going to take a long time to get them to change the tactical components that they do. And that's my background in the, Reader, the Reader's Digest view of my background at the moment. Well hey, well, hey, for as many decades as you've had in the field, I'd say about like six minutes, five, six minutes is, is pretty concise there. And man, so much <laughs> awesome experience that you've had. Uh, so one of the things I'm looking forward to unpacking a little bit is just training through the decades. Because man, I'll tell you what, if I just talking with coaches with a lot of experience, I think us, like by us, I mean like coaches in their 20s and 30s, it's like we see things and I think we don't realize what's been around for a while and then how things have changed. So yeah, alongside with the training thing, something that's always really just fascinated me, you know, you're looking through like high school and even college and, and higher level is like so many awesome marks out of the 80s and 90s. And I know the popularity of track is a big thing, um, but how is, in your experience, how is the training like really, has there been any really fundamental things that have really changed in the tr training from the 80s and 90s to today? And there's some big reasons that maybe we aren't seeing some of the marks that we are. Like, I mean, long jump, the guy just jumped 28-11 and, you know, it's like, you know, it's it's the farthest, I mean, you coached Mike Powell, obviously, it's the, it's the farthest anyone's jumped in a while. And and what do you? What's your take on kind of the training throughout the last few decades with with the speed and the power in track and field, particularly the field events? Well, you know, it's 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 a, it's a little difficult for me, certainly in the last decade, because I've basically been out of the country um, for the last decade, close to it, only only a couple of years in country. Um, but outside, when I look back, and, and this is my own personal journey, uh, which is a little bit of what we're talking about. There haven't been many fundamental changes for me since what we were since what I was doing in the '80s. Um, technically, you know, although everybody jumped on uh, Peter Wyand and 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 the mass-based model, and you know, I had some pretty interesting uh, discussions with people during those days in the late '90s, early 2000s, pretty contentious ones, and and I had to essentially seal the deal with. Guys, I'm a triple jump coach. Let me tell you something. Just doing mass only doesn't work. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you just just getting people to understand max velocity running mechanics. Acceleration is relatively easy to understand. Everybody kind of gets it. But max velocity is a lot more difficult. I think the primary understanding of max velocity mechanics has grown in, with the masses over the last uh probably five years. I mean, if, if you just look at what what um, Christopher has done at Simply Faster and brought to the forefront a lot of minds, and it doesn't have to be one mind, which is what I really like, because you start to see the common truths permeate the events. You see the common truths permeate the in the technology, and you see it permeate the minds of a lot of different human beings that are coaching. And, and this tells me that the message is being delivered finally. Um, I think we're still, you know, we, we swung too far in the functional direction uh, for a long time. We only have a certain amount of time. We've we've moved physical therapy and rehab into uh, training, uh, and that makes it a little pretty difficult in, in, in situations which you do have limited time. 
I am a I was a big proponent and have always been a big proponent of if you, you wish to use the term prehab, it's been part of our warm ups since oh geez eighty three <laughs> for me maybe eighty two eighty three eighty four. Um, Hank Kreinhoff and I did a back to back powerpoints in which we talked about the things we've been doing for a long time and and I think people were a little sort of taken aback by the fact that. Most of the stuff they were considering new, we've been doing for about 25 years, if not longer. Uh, so it's not much for me is actually new. Technology obviously is new and access to it. That's been overall the biggest thing. I mean, Dartfish, which, you know, Victor Bergonzoli, you know, helped USA Track and Field get going with that when I was head of sports science for U.S. track and field back in the 2001, I guess it was now. Um, you know, that's been a big thing. OptiJump I brought to the U.S. Gen Optic Laser we brought to the U.S., the first people using it. Uh, a lot of first, the Omega Wave, which I've been using since 2000, was Omega Wave 1 user in the United States. Uh, these are the things that I think we're, we're, we're starting to, uh, to see that coaches either run from or grab maybe too much of um we have a tendency to want to believe all data and we're collecting a lot of it right now that's for sure i mean the 1080 sprint which i started using in 2015 um i brought it here to china you know we get tons of data and well, i don't think we can use it all really well <laughs> and and that's the hardest thing to actually discriminate, and I mean to use that word in a very positive way, to, to discriminate amongst all these options we have in our coaching lives, figure out which ones work well. You know, Tendo, I like because it's simple. Gym Aware, I like for the team. Tendo, I like for the individual sports. Um, Kaiser, my go-to and has been. I don't, I will not go to a training center if they don't have Kaiser. As a matter of fact, I don't consider them tr a true performance center if they don't have Kaiser. Uh, that to me is the deal breaker. Like you don't have Kaiser, you don't yet understand human performance. That's kind of what I've seen over the last 25 years for sure. I'm seeing a lot more knowledge and a lot less wisdom because we're getting a lot of young coaches who have a lot of the dots on the page but aren't quite connecting the dots in some cases. That is why I think we've seen the field events uh, it, it's taken a while for the young coaches from the early 2000s through 2010 to get enough time in their coaching to move into uh, the experience and have the wisdom to start producing uh, some of the uh, things we're starting to see now in terms of performance. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, no doubt. I, I think with the whole the wisdom thing too, Ed, Dan John had talked a little bit about this when he was on recently, but just like it, it's almost too easy just to get hop on the internet and find something to do rather than kind of going through the trial and error and making a mistake and having to reach out to your network and solve the problem yourself. Oh, yeah. I mean, we fail our way to success. I know that sounds cliche, but it's the way it is. You know, I've been pretty fortunate. I haven't failed a lot. I've certainly failed on a daily basis, you know. Uh, and, and within the workout, intra-workout, uh, daily you fail, I think. But, you know, here in China, for instance, it's very difficult because they are 
only results oriented. They are not process oriented, um, which means that to come here, you have to develop processes that they understand and systems. And this is this is not easy duty. Believe me, uh, a lot of people have tried, and and it's it's you know I don't speak the language. I still don't speak the language. Four and a half years later, I apologize <laughs> to everyone for that. Um, so people ask me how I do it here. And I'll tell them it's like the old Ginger Rogers quote. You know, it's Ginger Rogers can do everything Fred Astaire does, but in high heels and backwards. That's what it feels like. Yeah, I uh, with with what you were saying too. You you kind of talked about you know a lot of the things you were doing. You and Hank Kryenhoff doing kind of back to back presentations and about all the things that you had done in, in the past, like through the eighties and nineties. And I always again, I always love hearing about that stuff. Uh, would you mind talking a little bit about? Some of this, like what I would call maybe like the core facets of like a weekly training setup that have maybe held in place, you know, for, for those decades, that's that stuff that works like, um, would you mind sharing? And then I'd like to, in the back half, get a little bit more of the technology and how that process has changed for you. But I'd love to spend the first time of our training talk, just talking about your training setups and kind of the fundamentals of what you're doing. Like when you work with Mike Powell and that type of thing back in the eighties and nineties. Well, I guess the, my, my basic philosophy is um, I train the movements first, and then I and then I strengthen the movements second. So I am a short to long person, if you wish. Um, fundamentally, I spend because this is the jumps, and and I I don't get to coach the two hundred and up very very rarely. Um, so I'm, I tend to be uh, an acceleration oriented person. I mean, I worked in the NFL and and uh, NBA and some other things tennis. So I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to enhance acceleration in from athletes in different sports. Uh, so my weekly setup has been very similar. And I continue to search for new patterns. And I look for new patterns in different people. Like right now, I have Sue Bing Ten. Well, Sue is a three day a week guy. We go four days, but he goes every other day. I mean, I'm back on a hard easy you know, Bowerman system uh, from, from Oregon with him because it works. If I try to do anything more, he dies. So my that, that three days a week with a fourth day being a speed endurance or special endurance or whatever it may be day has been a set pattern uh, for the sprints for me for a long time. Now on the jumps, I'm a little different. The jumps, I'll have an acceleration day, a jump, a jump day. Uh, a rest, and then another acceleration, another jump, uh, with the the, full, the a Saturday being a special endurance or a speed endurance day. Um, and I've kind of held on to that for this whole time. I have moved on occasion to two days on, three days with a third day of tempo recovery into a rest day. And there's some people that can thrive on that. So when someone asks me, what is, what's your training week? I'm like, well, you know, geez, which athlete are you talking about? <laughs> because there isn't one there's multiple and i also tend to be i tend to let omega wave govern me uh, a little bit i mean i don't let it govern me completely but i definitely let it govern me uh so it, i i don't get in a position to where i'm going to injure somebody still your first thing is just like a doctor do no harm um but i uh you know i i've i have taken years and trying to figure out this special way and there, and there isn't a special way. I hate to break that news to anybody. 
there are multiple special weekly training plans that can work very well for uh, a, a variety of individuals. Yeah, but I I, um, I always like hearing that uh, just because I think uh, especially those of us who've been coaching for a while, we run into that really quick where it worked the, the plan worked for a few people, but then you know maybe a third of the people it stagnated and they and they weren't doing anything and. To me, hearing people, you know, hearing the stories of the differences and what works for what what type, and generally speaking, and, and the individual nuances, um, that's always where it's at to me. I love to hear that stuff. And do you ever? You said generally the sprinters are uh, like every other day, uh, like you said a Bowerman or maybe like a Charlie Francis type thing. Um, and then the right. jumpers are. Is there any reason, or is there any sprinters that you find train kind of like the jumpers, where they go the neural days back to back, or or vice versa? Is does that ever kind of fit the bill, or is it is it? Do you really kind of see those? I'm sure. Well, you know, it's a delicate balance with the neural system with the sprinter, and and of course you also have to ask me what time of year because that 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 varies uh, accordingly. Um, the sprinters that I've had, you know, I. I I guess I would have to say, I'm not going to guess, but I will have to say that based upon their flying 30 time or flying 10 time, which are the two most often tests that I use, uh, or tests that I use most often, if you wish, mm -hmm. um, I use those to determine essentially along with the jump test, what kind of, what kind of tissue this human being has. And for the athletes that are higher twitch, faster twitch, have a predominant number of faster twitch fibers, I'll go to a hard day, easy day. For those that don't, I may, I may not, and I may look at a little more workload to uh, get the same stimulus response. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I never thought about it that way, like using the, the sprint test to make that determinant, because, yeah, obviously the sprinters are going to be a little bit faster on <laughs> uh, those, those flying. Uh, do you think like the the resting, like the resting muscle tone, like a, maybe a jumper, and this is just me speculating a little bit. So feel free to tell me if I'm wrong here, but like a jumper may, being a little bit stiffer, uh, versus a sprinter, maybe having a little bit more uh, loose, uh, muscle tone in, in what they're doing. You think it's the tone until, until I came to Asia, I would have said yes, but you know, it, it's also difficult because in the U S majority of our jumpers are also sprinters. It's not true outside the country, necessarily. Uh, it certainly isn't true in Asia. But in Asia, the density of the muscle fibers, are, it, it's, it's amazing, actually, how less dense they are. Um, you know, whereas you might have a, a, a long jumper spinner, you, you go to poke your finger in their thigh, and it's like, oh, it's like <laughs> cement. You know, they're just incredibly stiff. Here, I can poke my finger right into the bone of their thigh. They're just that pliable, elastic, and mostly because they don't do a whole lot of strength training when they're younger, mostly jump training. So when I get here, they're jump training. They're jump trained to death. They're, they know how to jump. Um, and we just need to get them stronger to increase that muscle density, to increase their stiffness. Um, although they have a neural ability to get stiff, They've never produced the, the, the strength conditions to be stiff. And that's a whole other conversation. But we can, we can enter into that one as you wish here as oh, yeah. well. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, so to answer your question, um, in the States, most of my sprinters, most of my jumpers were sprinters. So they got trained similarly. 
um, which means they would go off and do a sprint on occasion. Mike Powell, to this day, I should have ran Mike in the 200. He was a, an incredible 200-meter runner and should have run the 200, uh, but I didn't. And, you know, I had to protect the integrity of his legs, and he just couldn't handle that kind of workload uh, that was going to be necessary to do both without breaking down. The true thoroughbred. Yeah, that makes me think about like, you know, Christian Taylor and you know, popping off the occasional 400 there. And it, it does seem an interesting, like if you're built to jump, you're built to kind of have that efficient sprinting. I, um, what's your thoughts on that? And the, like those combos who are the longer sprinters and the, the jumpers? Well, almost all the jumpers that were great in the United States uh, were 200 meter runners. Um, very few were 100. Carl, obviously the exception. Paul was a good 200. Conley was a 200. Myricks was a 200. Um, some of the other guys here recently are 100, 200 guys. Uh, what I see as a fault is that they have not been able to transfer the 100 meter mechanics essentially to a long jump rhythm hmm. style uh, or triple jump rhythm style, whereas Christian has done both. Uh, and, and, you know, credit to Reyna. Who, uh, who has coached Christian for a long time, you know, they, they understand each other and they, you know, that relationship is one that's one of those unique relationships that, that you see in the, in, you know, to the, the history of, of track and field. Uh, they've made it work. Christian can do this. I wouldn't suggest for everybody. I wouldn't ever overlay a Christian Taylor training program on anybody who's developing. It would be foolish. We tend to make that mistake a little too often. We look at a workout online and we go, oh, my gosh, that's great. <laughs> you know, I might look at a workout online and go, yep, I like that element. Maybe I'll use part of that element, part of that element. I'm not going to use the whole workout. I don't even know why it was designed, to be honest. You know, and, and you know, if you've ever spent time on the track as you have, you'll hear us as coaches say some of the dumbest things you'll ever go. You might, that guy's an idiot. Listen to what he's saying. But when you don't know the background, you have no idea why that person's saying that. It may be the only way they can communicate that information to that athlete and would not use it with another athlete. And, and we tend to be very critical with each other, very negative. We call each other out, you know, oh, he's not good at what he's doing. He's got this, uh, drugs, that, this, that, you know. The fact is that as a profession, we're, we're, we're pretty miserable. <laughs> it's, it's one of the, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate um, because it'd be a lot more fun to be not miserable with everybody and, uh, and have everybody coming together and enjoying each other's uh, abilities and, and understanding that each athlete, coach-athlete relationship is, is really unique. And anybody who's had to take on an athlete from another coach knows how difficult it is to then to to create that unique uh, communication pathway that you that's necessary uh, to have success. <laughs> Although you would look at me and go, "Wait a minute, you don't speak the language, and your guys are still being successful." You know, yeah. Well, I use a lot of video, and I guess I'm getting good at mime. <laughs> yeah, they say the what is it like eighty percent of communication is is not verbal or something like that. I probably butchered it, but. No, you're, you're pretty close, and I'm, I'm living proof of that right now. Um, you know, there, there's, there's certainly no way that I can communicate with them the nuances of what I want to say. 
And I don't have translators that have sports backgrounds, so they don't understand the language even. So if you understand that it takes a while for a coach and athlete just to understand each other's verbal communication, try doing it in another language in which you cannot use the same cues. You can not understand external and internal cueing if you wish to, 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 to utilize that terminology. You, 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 you're just trying to get them to do things, <laughs> and you break it. And the beauty of it, and, and I think uh, about every five to seven years, I'd go back and coach junior high school because you got to get to the elements there, the basics, and you have to remember what they are, and sometimes you can lose them when you're coaching the elites, although you shouldn't, but you can. Um, because some of the elites are just so good as athletes that you don't have to worry about the basics. Now, that isn't as true today as it used to be, where I don't see the same athleticism in the elite athletes that, that, that I come across as I used to. We spend a lot more time trying to create an athlete now than we used to uh, in order to get to the event-specific stuff that we want. Um, so I, I find that... Uh, Going back and, and working the junior high, that really makes me think, what are the basic elements of this particular thing? Now, having said that, coming to, Ch to when I went to Korea and to China, the same thing happens because you don't have a language. You can't use your language. So you have to find what are the basic fundamental things that must be delivered to these athletes in order to get them to improve. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it definitely changes your perspective, like you said, on internal and external cueing. And uh, totally agree with what you're saying, too. Like, just like kind of like coaches being at war with each other a little bit, taking on a new athlete, and as well as coaching young athletes in junior high. It's all all really good stuff. Uh, something you mentioned, I'd actually love if you expanded on, because I, I think about this a lot, but you mentioned like athletes now they're missing a lot of components of athleticism that people used to have. Uh, could you go into a little bit of that? And then how, like, how do you build that? I, I was thinking about that too. I've done some recent podcasts just on like kids don't play as much anymore and, you know, not as well-rounded yeah. multi-sport and those types of things. Uh, could you expand on well, that yeah, athleticism? I, bit of it? The, the whole concept of me understanding it even better um, comes from, uh, oh my gosh, why did I just blank? It comes from Isfahan, you know, there at uh, University at UVic, and um, you know, back in 1995, I'm lecturing in Australia, and Isfahan Bali is as well, and I'm watching his lecture, and I'm going, yes, this is what we're seeing. I'm, that's 95. I was already seeing it, and I brought. He was kind enough to give me his lecture then. I still use some of his slides because they're they're still brilliant even today, even if even if there's conflict over things, the concepts are still relatively. Uh, uh, well, still, still uh, important even today. But I brought it back to the U.S. '95 and showed it to USA Track and Field. And said, "Guys, we've got to start thinking in this way, or we're going to lose our sport." And everybody poo pooed it. Of course, there was nobody who was even remotely interested. It wasn't until oh, maybe 2003, 2005, somewhere in there, that USA Hockey actually picked it up. And the only reason they picked it up was because Canadian hockey had started doing it and some of them had filtered down into the U.S. So we still don't have, for lack of a better way, an LTAD model or an early development model that um, can work. Although 
many would say, well, wait a minute, we do. We have elementary school PE. Oh, wait a minute, that's gone. <laughs> we have junior high PE. Well, wait a minute, that's gone. High school PE, yep, that's disappeared. Um, we have middle school sports, high school sports, and we have a lot of club sports. And as much as I like specialization at a certain age, early specialization is not necessary for almost every sport with the exception for pretty much gymnastics. But we're doing early specialization with soccer, baseball. You know, we've done it with baseball for years, obviously football and uh, hockey. You know, there's just a lot of different sports that are getting too specialized too early. And I think that the evidence is pretty clear that multiple sport athletes get injured less for the most part and are just better athletes uh, overall. Now, maybe not in track and field, uh, but certainly in team sports, a multi-sport athlete, I think, has a distinct advantage. When you don't have those, those experiences, those movement experiences in youth, then you've decreased your ability to build the pyramid, if you wish, from the base up. The base is too small. Now, you know, when we look at basic movement, basic motor skills and to movement skills and to sports skills, uh, depending upon the terminology you, you, you want to use, you know, when I come to China, it's worse because in China at 12, they start specialization in track and field. They don't, when I mean specialization, I mean, all they do is long jump <laughs> and all they do is the same training every day of the week, every day of the year, every year, no change, no periodization, nothing. Now, that is in track and field. It's not necessarily in other sports in China. So the culture of track and field gives you a very one-dimensional athlete, which means that, and it's, there's pretty good evidence, that, that the Chinese are really good at the youth and junior level, and then they tend to disappear in the past, uh, up until myself and a few other coaches arrived here. They didn't develop much, and that's why you didn't see hardly anybody in the international scene. And And this is a amplified view of what's happening in the West. The West is moving more towards what China's doing. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's not a good idea in, in my view. I have to take, and because our warmups are designed to be more athletic, general athletic movements, um, into specific, I have to spend more time doing that stuff, which takes, means it takes me two to three times longer to develop an athlete here than I might in the U S or someone who I can talk to and who has movement skills already. Wow. So when I want to change, when I want to change somebody's, let's say triple jump technique, they got no place to go. They've <laughs> only done one thing, triple jump, and only that way for maybe 13 years. So to undo will take me a couple years to undo it, maybe a year if I'm really good, but probably more in order to start building it, just to get them to zero, to start going forward. You know, so when they start, when I get most of them here, they're starting at less than zero. They're not even starting like they've never done it. I'd rather have somebody who'd never done it before, but instead I get people who've done it before, so they're less than zero. And and, and you have to undo all those elements and then rebuild, re-engineer if you wish, to, to get them to some of the things that you'd like them to do. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I'm just to say that uh, 
clear enough or oh yeah no yeah that's that's awesome uh yeah actually i was as you were saying that like some of the things you do in warm-up like you you said you and hank were talking about these things uh i mean obviously with track athletes it's probably not advisable to warm up with like team sports like the stuff they were missing when they were younger all the time at least um is there any like just for the people listening like examples of things you're using in those the the gpp or the warm-ups to get some of that stuff back like what are some things you want to see these athletes do and how they move that can rebuild some of that well we do we we do more multi-directional work than i would normally do um we do more movements through space if you wish but not not moving long in space but short in space just trying to get their vestibular system to understand where their body is you know where when i put my arm over here what does it mean to my body when i put my leg over there what does it mean to my body so how do i counteract that how do the other muscles it's 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 a coordination and as gary winkler has pointed out over and over again it's all coordination and so it's developing um variable coordination mechanics or variable coordination opportunities giving them the opportunity to get their body to move uh, in different ways. Now, my first, if you wish, dynamic warm-up, uh, you know, was 1982, and I, uh, the fact that up until recently it was still a bone of contention or a discussion, at, it sort of made me chuckle a little bit. I mean, I have the same issue with Kaiser. It's 1983 is when I started using it. You know, today. It's being discovered, I guess, as I, as I look around the world. Not, not as much as I think it should be, but these are the sort of elements that Hank and I talked about. Because Hank, I introduced Hank to Omega Wave and, and to Kaiser and to a few other things, and Hank introduced me to some things. And <coughs> we had a common friend, Dr. Bill Leach, Dr. Guillermo Leach, who brought us together. Um, and you know, even though we don't see each other, or talk to each other, we're just, we're, we'll always be fast friends. And uh, we always have this very discussion, the things that, that, and Hank's so much brighter than I am, but the things that we were doing back then, I mean, little things like starting to do Swiss ball work in 1987, you know, ultra slide, which I think we're starting to see, ultra slide, that was like 1989. Uh, um, I actually can't even remember when, when he brought that ultra slide out. But I remember using it at a trade show and then buying one. I had one in my house back when I was living in California in the early 90s. So there's little – of course, my nickname is Mr. Gizmo. You, might, <laughs> you may or may not know that. But I tend to utilize tools um, more so than most coaches do. Um, and, and I and I – I like the utilization of technology. And as a matter of fact, in, in, in the Asian countries, I've told them very frankly, I said, look, we aren't as talented. There's just no doubt in my mind. We do not have the genetic ability that they have. Even if there was a billion and a half people here in China, they're still genetically not as good in, in athletics. Um, but we can beat them with technology. We can be smarter than they are. Um, and, 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 and do things a little bit better. And that's the goal is to find a way to do something just a little bit better each day. 
so that over a period of time you accumulated a great change. I mean, you know, this, the, the kid from Cuba just jumped 883. My kid just jumped 847. There's 40 centimeters difference there. You know, will my kid ever jump 883? Uh, probably not. He might go 860, though. But he's just a little bitty guy, you know, com comparatively. Um, but, you know, you look at the sheer athleticism and the power and the ability of some of the Western athletes versus the Asian athletes. And to a degree, we should be ashamed that we don't have in the United States five guys jumping over 860 or 850 at this point in the game. I mean, the fact that that was the longest jump since Mike and Carl says a lot. You know, there's there's been some tremendous athletes in the U.S. that unfortunately just their coaches just weren't developed enough at that time to bring them to the level that they were that they should have been to. And uh, no, no fault of their coaches. You, there's just a there's a timeline. You just can't push experience. You you can't have experience without experiencing it. And those coaches now are in their 40s. And they're much better coaches than they were before. And, and we're starting to see, you know, some of those results, even though in the technical events, we still need some help, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it is really amazing how much, how athletic there are some people over here in the United States and then in, in Cuba. And it does, yeah, it definitely over there, I, I can definitely see how it's like every little one hundredth and centimeter and, and how the data or how the technology you're using can help you to to get that going. I, um, and I definitely want to get into that here in a few minutes. I did want to ask you, and, uh, in terms of the long-term athletic development model, you had mentioned a lot of those guys there in China, uh, didn't really lift, uh, in their upbringing. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of thoughts on this and I've always curious, but what's your thought on when an athlete, a track and field athlete in particular, or someone interested in being at their highest speed power level in their, you know, late twenties or, or whenever they're going to peak, um, what's your thoughts on integrating lifting over time? When should it start and how much as they go along? Well, I mean, the high school athlete today, it's going to be pretty hard to keep them out of the weight room because they're all going in the weight room, um, faulted or not. As a track coach, and you heard me say this earlier, you know, I am a uh, technique development and then add strength to the technique. Um, so I, I feel the same way for the youth, you know, the junior high school coaches and high school coaches who have decided that winning is the most important thing they can do are, are, are doing a disservice to the long-term development of the athlete. Mind you, they're taking care of those athletes that don't really give a hoot about being uh, a great track and field athlete and they're winning and they're doing good and they're developing them, developing them in so many other great ways. But in terms of long-term development, if those coaches, and there are, uh, I, I think we're probably have lost a lot of great high school coaches to retirement, attrition, um, run out of the sport, whatever it may be. But the fact, the fact existed, if they would spend their time on developing the tactical model in sprinting, just in sprinting alone, it would carry over into so many others, other areas. If they would make them heptathlete, decathlete style, it would give them more general athlete development. My boy who just, uh, just, just jumped uh, 847 last night was a former decathlete. He has the best athletic ability. He learns the easiest. I can tell him something and he figures it out. 
Su Bing Ten has great athletic ability uh, in terms of learning the sprints. Now, if I asked him to go kick a ball or to shoot a basketball, he's, he's dead in the water. Couldn't do it, you know. But um, I think that the onset of strength training probably shouldn't really occur until uh, 16 or so. Uh, earlier than that, can you do it? Yeah, of course you can do it. Does it does it limit things? I don't think so. Um, I do believe it too much. The, and, and the reason I'm, I'm hesitant here is because CrossFit has become so big that people would tend to move in a CrossFit direction. Um, now, mind you, CrossFit even today is a pretty pliable term. <laughs> it's not what it was, you know, even even three years ago um, or five years ago. But a lot of kids, I mean, I've seen a lot of football teams at the high school level go to CrossFit for the training. I'm like, well, maybe that would be a good thing if they just didn't do uh, the, the volume of weight training that they're currently doing or if they left the weight, left the weight training to be relatively easy. Um, you know, as an example, we look at the Chinese weightlifters who are arguably the best in the world. And, and, and I see them because I eat lunch with them and dinner every day. And they come in and they're just, they're hulks. And the very first thing we think is, oh, they're doing drugs. Maybe true at the provincial level in China, but at the national team level, that ain't happening. They're going to get busted and you do not want to get busted at the national team level in China. It's a disgrace. You're a disgrace. And you won't be, you're, you're in trouble for life. Um, having said that, observing the, the weightlifters. When, and now I understand how that why they're so big. You know, where we might do a weightlifting session, they'll do a weightlifting session and then they'll finish. And 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 I I, I had to go see this for myself because I was uh, Joseph Coyne had told me about this, and I had to go observe it and and watch these guys going in and they do multiple sets and reps, high reps, and it's hypertrophy. They hypertrophy at the end of a training program. These are the things that we just don't think about, and in the in the in the long run, it helps them become better athletes for their particular sport. Um, so you have to excuse my tangents, but um, um, you get me thinking a lot of different directions, uh, which I do quite often. Uh, to get back to your original question, 16, 17, women maybe a touch earlier. Uh, but establish a tactical model first before you start strengthening it. Otherwise, they'll depend on the strength. And uh, the model itself will be deficient. And then the next coach will have to undo the model, which means the athlete will be frustrated to go through psychological issues, trying to understand why they aren't getting better. And they can't get better until they get rid of the previous uh, uh, model that is inappropriate. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I um, I really like that that thought. I and I'm such a huge fan of get fast before you get strong, or get get fast and technically good, and then get strong in that pattern. I I posted a, a triple jump video on my Instagram not too long ago. It was just a guy who like fell after a second phase and rolled into the pit, and I just posted, "What's wrong with this?" Just to see what people would say, you know, like and a lot of people said his eccentric strength you know people weren't looking at the patterning the mechanics the arms they just said his eccentric strength wasn't good enough and i was like <laughs> you know really, like really like it's like so often people just want to tag 
strength, you know, something weight room related to something uh, that yeah. an athlete's doing. How about the position in which his foot hit the ground you know, with respect to his body? Yeah. I mean, there's very few guys in the world that can have the strength if you're in the wrong position. Exactly. Yeah. I have a little female triple jumper here right now who is stronger, pound for pound, way stronger than my men. Way stronger. And she's that way because she's jumped the same way for years. She's got a, an East German style triple jump. She goes, I mean, way up in the air and comes down and she comes off it. She can land <laughs> from, she's probably got a, oh God, maybe a meter, 0.4 meter, 0.5 heights on her hop. And getting her to change that is almost impossible. <laughs> she's 28 years old. And, you know, she's just not going to be able to pull it off. Uh, and she can't go back. For her, it's going to take a year to go backwards to try to get her to understand skipping the stone and the triple jump versus, you know, bouncing a ball um, high in the air and then hoping that you can do another bounce and another bounce. So needless to say, that's a, that's another conversation, triple jump mechan biomechanics and, and how we go about training it. But there's, a, there's, there's just so much to undo oftentimes. Now, you could take the other tact, and that is, well, let's just change a few things. And there's coaches that do that and can be successful with some athletes. Um, you know, I watched uh, Brooks Johnson coach a discus thrower, and Brooks was pretty, you know, pretty honest about it because I'm just helping him get out of his own way, you know. It, it, I'm not going to change things technically much. He's already doing a lot of things well. Let's just help him get out of his own way. Sometimes it can be that simple. But you have to have the years of understanding in order to be able to pull that off. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more with that. That's I, I love it when coaches say that too. Like rather than just the tendency to want to coach up every single little thing, just having the you know, humility to say, I'm just, I'm just gonna let this athlete <laughs> create this environment for this athlete to do their thing. And I like that a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting here because as the years have gone on, people are seeing me say less and less during competition. They're saying, well, you're not helping him. Oh well, yeah, I've already helped him. <laughs> Don't need <laughs> to help him now. They're the, the, this is, this is, this is those four phases, you know, of, of that athlete's development that they need to figure out. And, you know, they're now into the point where they're competent and it's conscious competence before they were, you know, consciously incompetent, if you wish. Now they've arrived there. I don't have to say much. And that's when you know you're doing a pretty good job coaching, when you can back away and the athlete has the ability to do this on their own. And that's what you want. You want them to get that because there's going to be situations in which either you're not there you can't communicate well. The crowd's too loud. There's a lot of things that get in the way. Um, and, and, and they have to learn. It'll never be completely independent in the field events, but it's got to be pretty independent. You, know? you certainly don't want tremendous dependence on you as a coach. That's a, that's a bad thing to teach. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm actually been, I'm going back to reading the inner game of tennis again. I read it like three years ago and, just going back to reading again on just thinking of ways to say less and when. It also reminds me of, I think it was uh, some Franz Bosch slide deck I saw the study, but the one with the discus throwers and the ones who 
they either were coached uh, by a coach uh, uh, qualitatively each throw or they just knew the mark they threw. And it was like the, the people who had an instruction each throw through a little further in the short term, but in the long term, it was the people who just had to figure it out themselves. Um, like just kind of that point where the cues, you, you know, the, the your own exploration where the cues won't stick with you in that main competition. And it's just, I mean, obviously we don't want to not say anything to our athletes, but it definitely makes us think, you know, um, so I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, we're we can overcoach really easy, you know. It's not hard to do. It's it's hard to do in China because they don't understand me anyway. <laughs> but uh, you know, so at one level, I've learned to shut up. Uh, but you know, you 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 also know that um, there's there's certain times where it's really important to get across to. Um, these athletes exactly that that one thing just that one thing and then leave it alone you know don't you don't have to go any farther than that so yeah i like i like uh, that one thing yeah one one thing make one thing do one thing well in this competition and 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 let's live with it and and i think that uh, i found that to be a little frustrating for the chinese at times because they tend to be interestingly enough they tend to talk a lot uh, to their athletes. And it's like, uh, I've, I've tried to tell them, stop talking so much. <laughs> You're doing them a disservice. Because as Tom Teles pointed out when Mike broke Carl, and was really, it, it, it was, what an insight by Tom. He said, you know, up until that last jump, I didn't, the second to last jump, I didn't say anything to Carl. And then I told him he was going to the right and he needed to straighten it out. And as soon as I did that, I took away all instinctual athleticism that he had. He started thinking. And, you know, Tom was right. As soon as Carl started thinking, he lost. Because that, just that little bit, you don't, you don't need to remove many milliseconds in order to be second in any sport in track and field or any, any event in track and field. And to take that little bit away from Carl at that particular moment in time, probably lost in the world record man that's such a cool anecdote to think of and it kind of makes it just kind of reinforces or makes me think too just like each instruction too is like also a judgment of sorts that gets athletes conscious mind working in oh absolutely yeah the athletes think you're judging them for sure they're thinking it's a critique um and it and, and it may may not have ever been intended that way you got to be careful you know, and I've made that if I've if I've ever failed, it's been there. I mean, you know, when I do my own self critic criticism, I go, hmm, you, you shouldn't have said that, you know, or or that that didn't work. Don't you know? The, the, don't do that again with that athlete. And uh, yeah, I think each each coach has to uh, take that, sit down with themselves, and and, and evaluate, do a self evaluation on. On the way to communicate, because we can be really good communicators and really, really bad communicators within seconds of each other. Yeah, I think it just it, like you said, it just takes that reflection to it. Like takes reflection to get to that point. Because I think if you if you don't reflect, you just keep kind of do what you're doing and throwing out tons of cues and probably at the wrong time. And <laughs> uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I'd like to get to some some following up on some of the strength training. Uh, you had mentioned, you know, we're talking about long term development and and various things and muscle tone and 
Uh, and that, maybe this is piggybacking too off the sprints and the kind of doing the catering more towards those three days a week and then the jumps may be able to handle four days. But what are some core, and obviously the lifts can only do so much um, in and of themselves, but are there any core lifts or, or marks that you really like to see athletes in the sprints and then jumps uh, be able to achieve? And then how do you kind of roll with that throughout your training programs? Well, I don't, I don't have a core um, I don't have a core strength number. I'm not like I have in the throws in which I would have a core number. I say, okay, you probably need to get here in order to at least be competitive. Um, that's just not necessarily true in the sprints. Uh, but what I do look at today, having had access for a number of years now is some of the power numbers and you know, um, I tend to look at things in terms of watts per kilogram. So I don't look at at the how much can you lift. I look at what can you lift in, in terms of the power with respect to your body weight. Uh, so in, in the sprinters, I tend to look for, let's say, clean. Uh, I use a Kaiser squat. I, I use a single leg step up, a 20-centimeter single leg step up, fairly heavy um, on, on the Kaiser rack with air and uh, mass combined. So I tend to look at something you know, over the 60 watts per kilogram. Uh, range 70 watts per kilogram is great. Uh, Subing 10 can hit that and it's clean and he can hit that now on his, uh, his Kaiser squat. So he is, uh, I, when, when, when I'm asking him to, and I'm, I'm not asking him to right now, but he is at around, let me see here. Let's do it. He is right at about 60 watts per kilogram right now, 61. Uh, on his Kaiser squat, he's just hovering a little over 4,300, 4,400 watts uh, at uh, 210 kilos. On his clean, at 105 kilos, he's hitting 2.4 meters per second. Wow. So he's right. Yeah, he, he can he can really roll with that. Um, and but but when he started, he could only hit you know he could only do 80 kilos at 2.3, 2.4. So I tend to look at the 2.3 mark, uh, two meter per second mark for the men in general, 1.85 to two for the women. I am pushing the women over two at this point. So almost all my women can lift over two meters per second uh, and clean at plus their body weight, maybe 10 kilos to 20 kilos plus their body weight. Um, Sue, you know, at 105, 110, he's at 120 kilos now and still over two meters per second at 70 kilos of body weight. Just, you know, you don't need to be any stronger than that, for God's sakes. <laughs> this doesn't, doesn't matter. You know, it gets in the way after that. Um, the old days, uh, you know, we're looking at two times, 2.5 times body weight for the squat. You know, Kaiser squat, I'm looking at, um, I want, I, I would like to see them over 3,800 watts to, to 4,400 watts in their power output. Um, and that's from, uh, that would be from a, a three different squat positions from a, a parallel 90 and a 120. Um, and uh, you, of course, parallel, you're going to have a little less 120, uh, which is kind of where our maximum stiffness usually is played in almost all of track and field for the running running events and field events. I mean, the, the horizontal jumps. So I, I use that 
and, and, and the area I play the most in is something that doesn't get talked about much and actually it's not even written about much is uh, it's what I call DIS, uh, Dynamic Isometric Strength. Um, that's where the reality of isometrics, unless you are working against a, just strictly it's something that will not move, I see it as more of a spectrum of a place between concentric and eccentric or eccentric and concentric, a place that's a continuum and, and otherwise known as stiffness, if you wish. And so everything we do in our strength training is to optimize or maximize uh, the stiffness component in that particular lift. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh, yeah. I, I really like that. I mean, maybe some people could say, too. And first off, I mean, I love that approach to it. Um, I, I'm happy enough to have some, you know, Kaisers where I'm at. And I think they're awesome pieces of equipment. Um, it, maybe some I'm just thinking maybe playing devil's advocate for some people, right? Like who would say, well, if they don't have, you know, Olympic level athletes, do those athletes need to spend more time with, you know, the static strength and those types of things? Uh, I mean, do you think that do you think that there's a, if you were working with like in working with a lower tier, lower level, would that be a possibility? Or is it, if you're, if your end game is sprinting and jumping, is it pretty much power all the way? Well, I'm still monitoring power even if I'm doing max strength. I'm still monitoring power even if I'm doing uh, speed. I'm still monitoring power. I'm still looking at the power, the power number. And you know, when we look at max strength, we've always thought, oh, we got to move slow. Well, yeah, it's because we're using mass. For God's sake, it's going to kill you if you move it fast. But you don't have to move it slow. You want to move it as fast as you can. That's the difference. We, our brains won't let us move something fast that we know will hurt us. So, you know, when you look at a clean, a clean is something that you can move fast. You know, it, it goes basically ballistic on you pretty darn quick. Um, and it's the reason why years ago I, I ventured to Kaiser in 1983. I put Kaiser in at Cal when I was coaching at Berkeley. Um, I did it because I wanted every single rep to be the best rep I could do, regardless of whether I was doing max strength or power workout or a speed based workout, whatever it might be. I wanted that. I wanted to be on that force velocity curve, optimize the force velocity curve. And there ain't nothing else that can do it. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. I was going to say it to you. If you try to do it with a squat, you have to deal with that bar basically coming back down on your spine. (laughs) And when you go as hard as you can, it's like it would get, that's right. I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, if you take, Let's say you want to lift 200 kilos. Well, you might be able to lift 200 kilos at 2.3 meters per second, but you're going to lift it at one point because you know at 2.3, it's coming off your shoulders. Mm-hmm. And it's going to come back and just break something. So you won't do it, which means that you are not optimizing that particular lift. You aren't doing it the best of your ability. I want optimization because I don't want to spend my life in the weight room. I want to get that weight room to be the most efficient weight room and to get the most out of it that I can. And still, our weight training workouts are you know, an hour and a half, two hours long sometimes, but we're taking a lot of rest. We're not working that whole time, for God's sakes. You know, we're resting 
majority of that time. So, because we're not weightlifters, we're jumpers or sprinters who are doing lifting sessions to enhance uh, their event. So that's that's I mean, my basic philosophy is that, and it and it follows that line that I I want to choose. I want to have something that allows me to move that chosen resistance at the fastest possible velocity so I optimize the power on every repetition, even fatiguing. Yeah, I, I love it. That's a decision I made in 1984, and I haven't looked back. I was just thinking, I feel like the only lift, if you didn't have a Kaiser, that might work. And I think a few people I know of are doing this, but like a hex bar deadlift where you basically just go as fast as you can and just kind of let it drop. I mean, it's still not the same thing yep. as a Kaiser, but it's probably better than a squat bar if you had to go without it. <laughs> well, it's, it's not the same thing as a Kaiser because if you are accelerating that thing and you're going as fast as you can, let's say you have 100 kilos on that bar, how much does that bar weigh in the first inch? Probably 400 to 500 kilos. You know, and then how much, is it, how much does it weigh after you've, you've finished accelerating it, which is going to happen relatively quick? It weighs nothing. Yeah. And this is a hard, hard thing to get across. You know, when in a in a in a period of a lift, does the actual bar with weights on it weigh what you think it weighs? And and there's only two times that occurs. One is when it's at rest, and the other one is when it's at constant velocity. So if you want to actually lift a hundred kilos then you have to be at constant velocity to do that. Now, if you want to lift more than that, accelerate the heck out of it. Yeah, well, some people say that's sport. Yeah, it is. But you're also that plus your body weight. So getting across that concept, particularly in track and field and, and, and in other sports. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. We'll, we'll do cleans. But are, but are cleans the deal breaker? Mm-mm. No, they're not. Um, you know, I... I, I, I I basically do them here in China because they're used to doing them. I wouldn't do them otherwise. Hmm. I don't see a need for them. Um, I can get more out of busting up a Kaiser squat at 250 kilos. I can get faster, more powerful, and stronger. And my, their cleans have grown so much more than they did before they started doing the Kaiser squat because they're stronger. They're stronger through full range of motion. So when we take off at the board, we've got strength all the way through toe off. We're able to move all the way through. And that to me is what I'm looking for. You know, if I don't have that, I'm feeling like somebody's tied my hands behind my back and I can't train people the way I want to. I want to. Wow. That's great stuff, Randy. I like it a lot. Uh, last, The last little portion here, um, I'd like to get in a little bit of the tech you're using. So, uh, you had mentioned, um, like gym aware and 1080 sprint. You had said gym aware in a, a team setting versus a tendo. Could you talk a little bit about the team setting aspect of that and how that is a factor uh, in what you're it's doing? Just, it's just, yeah, it's, it's set up. The tendo is, I mean, the gym aware is set up for the team. I mean, you just scroll through all the names, boom, boom, boom. It's really fast. Tendo is individualized. Um, and, and tendo today, of course you can computerize it and set it up so you can, you can, you can look at it. It's, it's changed as well with the times. But for the individual, and, and, and I say this because I'm in China, where they, the, the gym aware doesn't work because it's not in Chinese. Um, 
So it's very hard for them to figure out. Whereas a tendo is just numbers. It's simple, but it's simple until the point. Peak power, average power, peak velocity, average velocity. Let me know what it is, you know. Bottom line, I don't need to see anything more than that right now. So it makes it simpler. And, you know, if I have a, a lab and I'm actually bringing people in and we're approaching them as lab rats and, and we're really getting into it with each one of them, I would probably use a, ten, uh, a gym aware. But as a tendo, I'll use in a training situation just because it's faster and easier. And I love the gym aware, don't get me wrong. But I can move through, the athlete can move through the tendo faster. Yeah, right on. Uh, yeah. So the, uh, go to the 1080 sprint, you know, if you wish. Um, uh, concept of it, you know, we're using force to determine that using the pulling force to enhance the velocity. I obviously, I still, I'm, I would still like to see something in which it is pure velocity based. Um, one of the things I did early on is that it would set the velocity so that was the maximum velocity it would move to. So let's say if I'm doing a flying 30 test or flying 10 test, and then I'm looking at overspeed, which of course would be above that velocity and assisted speed, which would be at that velocity or a little below. Um, I'm going to set the, 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 the velocity on the, uh, on the 1080 at, let's say 11.4 meters per second or 11.2 meters per second or 10.8 meters per second, whatever it may be. So they cannot go faster than that. Um, and you know, I don't use it a lot over speed. Um, I use it mostly assisted speed and, um, I will get to over speed probably next year with uh, Subing 10. I might do it this summer a little bit, but he's not ready because he's a muscle guy. He muscles his, his sprinting. He's not learned to relax yet. Once I see he's figured out this relaxation in his sprint and still having good force application, then I'll move to uh, the overspeed side of it to where I'm really looking at his contact times and, and trying to enhance those contact times. Yeah. That's really cool. How you, again, like get you know, the distinctions, just like you were talking about the three day and the four day people breaking it down to, cause I think a lot of people talk like, Oh, overspeed's good. Overspeed's bad. You know, it's like, like you just said, it just depends. And I suppose with athletes who can relax, it can be a very good tool. Uh, yeah. If you're able to do relaxed sprinting and apply and, and apply force appropriately, and then you're really looking at uh, contact times. I mean, with in, in Sue's case, he just had a lot of power leaks. You know, he he collapsed at the ankle. He didn't have great stiffness. His mechanics were um, not his front side mechanics weren't very good. He was he was a pusher. His arm actions were not very good. And we saw all this. The very I mean, I've been watching him for three years, and I just started coaching him in November. Um, so try to start to undo these things and. A simple one would be the Kaiser seated calf, which Dennis Kaiser uh, made for me and Willie Banks back in 1987. And when when Sue got on there, and this number may not mean anything to you, but he could only do 700 watts, 732 watts, I think it was, which means he was weaker than my weakest female <laughs> in his ankles. His soleus did not function like it should. Now he's at about 2,400 watts in his soul in, in, in there. He didn't collapse much anymore. He occasionally does on his third or sixth step, depends, fifth or sixth 
uh, in, in his start. But for the most part, he's now able to sustain his greater stiffness. Um, <clears throat> and that means that he can apply more force and accept it and react to it. Uh, and the way I approach this and, and getting the aerial, you know, taught me this uh, almost 40 years ago now. You know, muscles set up joints to take advantage of the elastic power inherent in them. And that's the way I approach, I approach sprinting. Reposition, let the muscles reposition the, the leg so that it's in a position to take advantage of the elastic power inherent in it. When Thomas Myers came out with anatomy trains and the first time I saw T3, which was for his first article, I went, well, here's what Gideon has been telling us all this time, now evidenced by Myers looking at the dissections of the human body and, 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 uh, and the fascia. So I immediately said, this is where, where we need to be. And then when Stecco went from there, then we, we saw more and more evidence of of, of this, although it was pointing towards therapy, I saw it as pointing towards technique and running mechanics. Because for me, you know, we always talk about it's the guy that slows down the least in the 100 meters. Well, I'm looking at it from the other direction. I'm looking at it that I want to utilize the greatest amount of elastic ability so that I'm using less metabolic constituents. And that way I can sustain my, my, my speed longer. Yeah. I'm not looking at it from an energy pathway. I don't want to utilize the energy pathway as much. I want it to be, <clears throat> although you're repositioning, the actual force application and the reaction to it, which is underneath volitional ability, uh, is elastic in nature. I want to utilize as much as possible. And that means that I don't have to use as much of my metabolic components, which means I will not then uh, fatigue as fast. Yeah, it reminds me of a study uh, a colleague of mine, Robbie Burke, shared with me. Uh, it was something to the tune of, and like, without if if the muscles were taken out of the human running equation, which which as you said, they're needed to get the joints in position. But if the joints were in position, it was just the skeleton and the tendons going through the running motion. There was some calculation that the human body could go like twenty percent faster or something like that. Um, but it, it was just. I, I kind of random, but it just kind of made me think about that and, and really thinking about the role of the muscles and, and the importance of joint position, positioning in the tendons, being able to do their thing, uh, being, being so critically important. You have to, yeah. I mean, you, you have to look at it bigger. That's still too discrete thinking. It's still not muscle tendon. It is fascial, which is much bigger than that. And that is part of it. What you just mentioned is part of the fascia, but fascia is so much larger in terms of the way it expresses force and, and can be utilized to express force in the human body. And that is what I think, <clears throat> if there was something new on the horizon, it is understanding how that works and how it can be utilized. Um, even a distance runner can utilize it if they can figure out how to get it. You can think about the advantage there if you're running at 10,000. If you can be more elastic with every step you're using less energy with every step that means you can sustain your velocity at a higher level forever for a longer period in the race it even has greater implications there oh right on yeah the longer the race the yeah, the more it more it becomes such a factor so yeah i know that the faster thing is so interesting to me too i 
just had bought a few books recently on the topic. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you had said that too, and kind of following up with just the muscle tendon study, getting beyond that into the fascia. I, I think it's fascinating stuff. Um, but I think that's yeah. about all the, I'd say that's about all the time. Yeah. Sure. All the time well, for today. But yeah. Thanks, Joel. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's 930 here and I've, I've actually got to go to the track myself. Um, I've still had the triple jump men today. Uh, so, you know, you, you sort of poked a little fork into my brain and, you know, keep poor, keep poking and see what we can pull out of it. Um, we'll go from there. Absolutely. All right, that does it for another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you listening to this series, this episode, whether you listen to one episode or a hundred. I'm so thankful to have you um, on this project, and I've learned so much, and I'm sure you have as well. Uh, if you want to support what we're doing, please, um, if you have the minute right now, you're not driving or anything, and uh, I'd love it if you stopped and gave us a five-star review for the show. I think it would just really help spread knowledge like this to all the younger coaches in the field who are just looking for uh, ways to make our athletes better, to give them the best experience that they can in sport, because that's really what so much of this is about. Uh, also, please don't forget, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, 1080 Sprint, Gym Aware, Freelap Timing System, Electrostim Units, EMG Units, um, Contact, Mats, Grids. Uh, they really got it all and a great blog as well. So be sure to support them and check them out. We'll see you guys next week with another great episode.